The Tom Woods Show, episode 1464. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, my away carry-on is everything I look for in a suitcase. It's lightweight, strong. It's got a really smooth glide through the airport. It's got a built-in combination lock a compression system for overpackers like me, and a laundry bag to boot. Get $20 off a suitcase when you go to awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Brian McClanahan week continues. We're talking to Brian McClanahan, obviously, who is the host of the Brian McClanahan Show. Brian spelled B-R-I-O-N. Brian is the author of numerous books, as I mentioned yesterday, PhD from the University of South Carolina, very, very knowledgeable, teaches at libertyclassroom.com. And today I thought we would talk about, let's say, some of the lesser known presidents, uh, whether they were good or bad, just lesser known, and get Brian's thoughts on them. Because Brian, after all, among other things, is the author of a book called Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. So he's got quite a lot to say about uh, about the president. So let's uh, let's dive right in. Brian, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. All right. Second episode of Brian McClanahan Week. This time we're going to talk about unknown presidents, unknown to 99% of Americans, let's say. And I like how when you were proposing this, you said that we could just pick a few out of a hat if if you want. (laughs) So uh, why don't we pick one? Let's start with one you think is a good president people don't know. about. I mean, the thing is, most people know about the bad presidents because they're the ones who are loved by everybody. But right. but in terms of good presidents, of whom there have been uh, some, you um, oftentimes haven't heard of them, especially the 19th century ones. So who would you say is the one who is, you know, let's, I mean, known to historians, obviously, but to the average American, basically unknown, but yet who was sort of a decent fellow, all things considered? Well, if you want to, if you want to go to the best, then it would be John Tyler. And anyone that's listened to me before knows that I think John Tyler is the best president in American history. Okay, yeah. And, so let's start yeah. right there. I want you to, to, right. to defend that statement. Right. So when you when I wrote my nine presidents who screwed up America, um, I wanted to not only talk about the bad people because that's I mean, look, we're all negative. I mean, these this president stinks. This pre- but I, they said, can we have something positive at the end of the book? And I said, sure. So I picked who I thought were the best four presidents, and that was four who tried to save her. And one of those four was John Tyler. And the premise of that book is that we should measure presidents on how they upheld their oath of office. And that's really the only measuring stick you can use. Did they, did they uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States? I mean, that's their job. So I thought, okay, well, who did the best job of that? And it would have to be John Tyler, hands down. John Tyler assumed office in 1841 after William Henry Harrison died. And uh, the cabinet called a meeting and said, okay, look, John, I know you're president, but we're going to run the show and you just sign off on whatever we do. And Tyler said, no, um, I'm president, so I'm going to make decisions based on what I think is right. And then you can go along with it or you can resign. He told him that. Well, eventually they all did resign with the exception of Daniel Webster, and he even resigned later. But uh, that was because Henry Clay was trying to pull the strings in the background. The problem was that John Tyler was an old nullifier. This is a guy that the one, the only person in the United States Senate that voted against the force bill, which was passed during the nullification crisis with South Carolina. The only one who did. He made a speech on it. Um, and people said, this is going to ruin your career. You can't do that. And we went out there and did it anyways. He was, he was um, reared at Jefferson's table, essentially. His father and Thomas Jefferson were good friends. He was an old Republican of the early uh, 19th century. I mean, this is a, he was like John Taylor of Caroline, but he's John Tyler. And um, so 
he gets into office, and of course, Clay thinks that we've got the Whigs in power now. The Whigs want a bank. The Whigs want internal improvements. The Whigs want tariffs. So Tyler vetoes all this stuff, and it drives Clay absolutely mad. And he was saying, he was vetoing it because he said, look, this stuff's unconstitutional. I might think that internal improvements would be good. Maybe a bank would be all right, whatever. I can think all those things, but until you tell me in the Constitution where is constitutional, I'm going to veto it. And so he's defending the Constitution. I mean, that's that's what his job is. Now, of course, there was a, a, a colleague from Virginia named John Minor Botts who wanted to impeach him for this. He wanted to impeach Tyler for simply doing his job, which was vetoing unconstitutional legislation. He's allowed to do that. Um, and it's funny. I mean, so he was actually, Tyler was, there was there were several impeachment proposals during Tyler's administration uh, because he kept doing what the Whigs didn't want him to do. And uh, then, of course, you know, if you look at the one issue that I think a lot of people criticize him for is Texas. But there again, Texas, in my opinion, was brought into the Union constitutionally. It was through a joint resolution of Congress. Congress can admit new states to the Union. There's nothing illegal about that. The, the Congress or the Senate, those who opposed him, said, well, you need a treaty to do this. And he said, well, I mean, we didn't get that. We tried. We didn't get it. But the Congress can just admit new states if they want to. They can admit Texas. It's a, it's a state. Uh, it's the state of Texas. It was just an independent state at the time. It wasn't part of any union, but it was still certainly a state, just like any other state in 1776. So I think Tyler's just a fascinating character in his personal life. He was very upright, uh, an interesting guy. Um, he uh, was married twice and very faithful to his wives. Um, so he wasn't a scoundrel morally. Um, he, uh, In fact, he called his plantation Sherwood Forest because he was like an outlaw there. Uh, and his grandsons, not his great-grandsons, but his grandsons still live there. So the, he has all that personal stuff, which is funny uh, in his life too, or interesting. Um, I just found him to be fascinating. And I think that when you look at that oath, though, there's nobody better than John Tyler. All right. So there's your case for John Tyler as the as the best president. All right. So now let's think about let's say names also not so well known who maybe you don't necessarily like, but maybe you do. Well, like how about, I think you mentioned Franklin Pierce as a possibility. So he's mm-hmm. from New Hampshire. All I right. remember reading about, uh, gosh, was it, I forget whether it was uh, a bill having to do with building like um, asylums for people with mental problems and he vetoed yes. it because it was yes. unconstitutional. So I don't know if I'm yes. remembering that right, but, but uh, yes. was, was he hardcore like that? Absolutely. Uh, Franklin Pierce is one of those others. He's always at the bottom of the list, right? You get these presidential rankings. Oh, we're distinguished presidents and here are your best presidents. And of course, Abraham Lincoln and uh, Franklin Roosevelt right near the top. And then at the bottom, you're going to have Pierce and Andrew Johnson and James Buchanan. Right. All these, the bottom dwellers, right? But I, I like to go to the bottom dwellers because usually they're pretty good. And, uh, and by and the way, Pierce, just to situate this in everybody's mind, he's he's elected in 1852, just for everybody to know. Okay, so go ahead. Right. Yeah, so uh, Pierce is often criticized because he signed into law the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And, uh, I mean, that that is a sacrilege. How can you sign this into law? And he's he's uh, he's supposedly a doe face, right? The, the term is a doe face, a, a northern man with southern principles. He was very good friends with Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was his secretary of war. Uh, but Pierce, here's another guy that had just a horrible personal life, um, his 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 uh, all of his kids were killed. His wife died when he was. I mean, he just everybody died in his life. In fact, his his last son was killed while he was en route to Washington to become president. He was uh, killed in a train accident, decapitated. Um, I mean, just horrible. Um, so you got that, which of course is interesting to read about. But um, but Pierce did veto that asylum bill because he said, look, if we pass this thing, essentially what we're going to say is that the general government can be in charge of health care. 
And do we want the general government in charge of all hospitals, all healthcare in the United States? Now, think about that in 18, uh, that was 1854, I think, is when he vetoed that bill. Think about that today. I mean, what we're, we talk about healthcare all the time. 1854, Franklin Pierce is saying, hey, if we do this, you're, we're going to nationalize healthcare. Uh, and so I'm going to veto this bill. It's so prescient. And then, of course, he also vetoed uh, several uh, internal improvements bills. Uh, he actually vetoed six of those. So he's blocking uh, internal improvements. This is something we don't even blink an eye at anymore. Um, you know, if the federal government wants to spend money on an interstate highway system, sure. If they want to spend money on the road in your neighborhood in front of your house, uh, they're going to get federal funds to fix that road. Yeah, why not? Uh, but I mean, Pierce and others would say, well, how does that benefit New Hampshire if I'm building a road in Alabama? I mean, am I going to drive on that road? Uh, is anybody else going to drive on that road? No, but... Um, that's not generally from from Alabama. So how would that benefit the U.S. or how would that benefit the the taxpayers in other states? These are state responsibilities. So uh, he's he's rock solid on the Constitution, good at foreign policy. Um, he was uh, certainly uh, now some people would say, well, he's got the Austin Manifesto that's trying to acquire Cuba, and there's these filibusters that he had no role in. But certainly he was uh, much more interested in a non-interventionist foreign policy than modern presidents. I mean, so I think that's. That's uh, laudable. So all these 19th century presidents before Lincoln were very much, for the most part, uh, non-interventionists. You know, if you look at Pierce, if you look at Buchanan and Taylor, and these people were very much interested in a, in a foreign policy that would be more in line with, say, George Washington than Woodrow Wilson. All right. So let's uh, let's say something about. Um, let me see. Who's the other? Who's the other one? I had a list of them right here. Yeah. Okay. How about? Okay. Here's one. Everybody hates like, and and I don't mean Nixon, right? Because in their heart of hearts, the establishment still kind of respects Nixon on some level. You know, they, cause he, he did, they admit he did do some things that they would have to approve of, but I'm thinking James Buchanan right <laughs> after Pierce, right yeah. after, right. you think they didn't like Pierce. Oh man, you haven't seen anything. Right. What is, is it just that Buchanan let the South go? And didn't, you know, at least, you know, as it was happening, uh, he wasn't going to use force to bring states back in. Is that what it is? I, I think that's part of it. But, you know, Gutzman doesn't like Buchanan either. Um, and um, look, I think it's that. It's also Dred Scott. The whole issue of Dred Scott where Buchanan was actually involved in the decision, which is horrible. I mean, look, the, the fact that the president and the, and the Supreme Court chief justice are trying to negotiate how they're going to rule so that they can supposedly— now, yeah, and yeah, Buchanan's, no, that's that's no good. Nobody, nobody yeah. denies that, right? But and one thing I'll say about that in Buchanan's defense, though, I mean, here's a guy from Pennsylvania. Again, he's a Northerner. He's considered a doe face, but he really wanted to try to end the slavery controversy. He thought it was annoyance. We got to get, we got to solve this thing somehow, right? We got these these two sections are getting really antagonistic. Uh, they're ta- they they're they're fighting out in Kansas. Uh, we got We got to come up to some solution that will stop this thing. And uh, I am a national president. I'm in charge of a national party, the Democrat Party, right? So we've got Northerners and Southerners. Let's come together on this thing and try to figure this out. And so that was Dred Scott. Now, it's a miserable disaster, and it's uh, it's a horrible view of due process. But I think in just looking back and trying to understand what he was doing, I can understand it. It was just the wrong way to do it. Um, but otherwise, I mean, Buchanan, uh, look, if, when, you, when you make the statement that secession caused the war, well, if that's true— then why didn't we have war between December of 1860 and April of 1861? Or why didn't we have war between December and March is more accurate. 
because Buchanan wasn't going to go and use force to bring the South back in the Union. So that simply blows apart the entire argument that secession caused war because for uh, nearly four months, we didn't have it. And Buchanan was saying, look, we're not going to, his attorney general, Jeremiah Black, had written a, a defense of Buchanan's actions and saying, look, secession is illegal, but so is using force to stop it. That's also illegal. So we can't do that. So that was Buchanan's position. I mean, and it's peace, right? We're not. He he did try to resupply uh, Fort Sumter at one point, and that ship was shot at, so he turned it around and didn't do anything else. That was it. That was January of 1861. He didn't make another move. So um, Buchanan's position was that, you know, I mean, this is, we only had seven states out of the Union at that point. We still had North Carolina in the Union, Virginia, Tennessee, all those states were still in the Union. So he's saying, maybe we can work this out and negotiate and get them back in at some point and uh, not have to go to a shooting match over this. And I think that's the more admirable position than simply saying, we're going to send in the troops to Fort Pickens and Fort Sumter, and we're just going to hope it it settles itself out. Lincoln knew exactly what would happen because he was told, if you send supplies into Sumter, if you send supplies to Fort Pickens, it's going to cause war. And it did. And so uh, Lincoln knew exactly what he was getting into. And I, I think that's Buchanan is, is good on that. He was also good on domestic policy in terms of uh, limited government. I mean, he was he was certainly in line with the Democrat position of the 19th century and maintaining a limited, strict construction of the Constitution when it came to uh, to internal improvements and, and things of like that. Now, he was pro-tariff. I will say this. Buchanan was pro-tariff. The moral tariff was passed uh, before he left office. So from Pennsylvania, he liked the idea of tariffs, but um, he generally wasn't as bad as people make him out to be. Let's say you're assessing the first half of the 19th century and you have to find the worst of the presidents. Who would that be? The first half. So you're saying up to 1850? Who would the yeah. worst be? Yeah. Um, a- Andrew Jackson. Oh, really? No, yes, yes. If you look at federal power, uh, close second is Polk. But Polk, at least, um, we had an independent treasury establisher in the Polk administration, which was good. Uh, the tariff was reduced, which was good. Uh, but Jackson, uh, other than the bank veto, and you got to understand why he did it. Jackson didn't veto the bank because he had some moral qualm about the bank. He vetoed the bank because Henry Clay was for the bank. That's it. Uh, Jackson, in fact, David Crockett pointed this out. David Crockett was his arch political enemy. A lot of people don't know that, but Crockett did not like Andrew Jackson. Uh, they're from both from Tennessee, and Crockett thought that Jackson was a shizer, right? He's he's a he's somebody that's. Um, He's, he's just not uh, interested in, um, in, he doesn't have any principles. And uh, so he thought that Jackson was a bank man. He thought Jackson was a guy that was for all these things. And, uh, but once you got on his personal enemies list, it was terrible. Now, Jackson, there's a reason why we have the whole Whig party because of Andrew Jackson. Uh, we wouldn't have had it unless Jackson was threatening to use force against South Carolina. Um, so this is why he was called King Andrew. And uh, you can certainly make a case that that was uh, this that was the uh, intellectual forebear of Abraham Lincoln and his attempts to use and ultimately using force against the South in '61. So Jackson was abusing the Constitution while at the same time rhetorically saving the Constitution. Now, uh, I mean that that's not a good thing to do. And I know that that Brad Berzer likes Jack. I like Brad's book on on Jackson, but I mean he's Jackson's in my nine presidents book, and he was one of the ones too that people 
pointed to and said, well, how can you say Andrew Jackson's a bad president? There's also the whole issue of the Bank of the United States when it, when it finally was, was going out of business, essentially, and Jackson illegally withdrew all the deposits from it. He's breaking the law, uh, and nobody called him out for that. I mean, the two Secretary of Treasuries didn't want to do it. Finally, Tawney says, I'll do it, and so that's that. But Jackson was, uh, was really problematic for, for central power. Um, we have to remember that in 1787, Jefferson called Jackson a dangerous man. Uh, that was long before Jackson was president. Jefferson could already see that Jackson was going to be problematic, and he ultimately was. I think, yeah, Brad likes a lot of the the Andrew Jackson, the man, and some mm-hmm. of his uh, exploits before becoming president. And I think there are some aspects of his presidency that he can approve of, but not not quite all. I mean, I look at Jackson, and I, you're right. I mean, obviously his his views of executive power are not, not mine, but also I think about, uh, I think Calhoun at that time was concerned about this idea that the president, which I believe is how Andrew Jackson portrayed himself, is he's like the president, he's the president of the American people. Like he he conceives of himself as being above the other, like for example, senators and representatives, because you just represent some dinky portion of the country, but I'm the person who represents the will of the entire people in the aggregate. And Calhoun was saying there is no such thing as the American people in the aggregate. We have uh, a set of societies here, uh, each of whom is distinct, uh, each of which is distinct from the other. So just this whole way of thinking is uh, bound to produce problems. And of course, you know, the handling of the nullification crisis and the force bill uh, are not, you know, are, are certainly not ideal. But at the same time, I mean, is he's not a big government president in the sense that he's not uh, launching any major initiatives. I mean, no president of the early 19th century did, but right. um, his there was a slogan associated with Jackson, which was equal rights. But equal mm-hmm. what equal rights meant in that context was everybody is equal in the sense that nobody gets a damn thing. Like nobody gets special privileges from the government. That's how he right. viewed equal rights. And so the working man, what he should be advocating is simply that there's no special privilege that builds up monopolies. And that that's your equal right. So, I mean, I find I don't find anything to object to on that. No. And I, I, what you asked about presidential power. I actually like Andrew Jackson personally. I mean, I, he's in my politically incorrect guide to real American heroes as a real American hero. So uh, Jackson personally, and you're correct about that. I mean, he didn't want corporate welfare. For example, I mean, so you're not going to uh, you're not going to abuse the, the laboring class by giving a bunch of rich guys protective tariffs or a bank uh, where they can get richer. I mean that that was and so this is why um, you know some of the lefties kind of like this is why Schlesinger kind of liked Jackson. I mean because he's supposedly this guy that's you know this early uh, progressive in essence. Um, but I mean it's a different kind of thing. It's not what the progressives would want. So uh, certainly I think Jackson's interesting uh, on a personal level. I just as a president, his abuse of power was just way over the top. So that's that's where I would say he's the worst. But you're right. No 19th century president, even the worst of the worst, even Alexander, not a president, but even Alexander Hamilton would not compare to the current crop that we have in D.C. I would take Alexander Hamilton over Ocasio-Cortez any day of the week. He would be so much better. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so that that's without question. <laughs> All right. So that's your that's your worst. Now, let's uh, how about Zachary Taylor? So now we're going to 1848. Mm hmm. Uh, Zachary Taylor, I love. Uh, Zachary Taylor viewed himself as another George Washington. I think he, of any of the presidents in that period, he almost could have pulled it off. Zachary, people don't realize how how famous Zachary Taylor actually was 
when uh, he was elected president. This is the guy that helped win the war with Mexico. And he had a tremendous amount of capital, political capital. And Polk knew it, which is why he tried to, he sacked him and tried to keep him out of politics because he thought this guy is going to become president. Now, the re- there's a couple of things I like about Zachary Taylor. Number one, when he was going to the inauguration, right? So he's riding in a carriage with Polk. And Polk writes this in his diary. I had a conversation with Zachary Taylor. And it's something that shocked me. And I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, Zachary Taylor essentially said that he thinks California and Oregon should just secede from the United States. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Could, can you imagine a world without California? If Taylor had had his wish, we wouldn't have California at that point. I mean, wouldn't the United States be so much better off without California? So um, California can go. And uh, But now as president, Taylor pushed to have California admitted as a free state because he said, look, this is what California wants. So he was into self-determination. Um, the, the one area that Southerners didn't like Taylor was that when they were threatening to secede in 1850, he told all the people in Texas, I'm going to hang you if you try to secede. Um, so a lot of people think he's, he's heavy handed there. But Taylor certainly had the Washington view of foreign policy. If you read his, his speeches on the issue, he was rock solid on that. Um, he was interested in a real union, meaning that he wanted the union to benefit all and burden all equally. He was certainly not someone who was trying to abuse power as, as executive. Um, and I think that's that's something that's laudable about, about Taylor. But um, he only lasted a little over a year in office. So, I mean, we don't know what would have happened. But Taylor had enough political capital, I think, to keep the United States together in a way that George Washington was able to do as well back in the 1790s, when things could have blown up then, too. I mean, look, things were, could have blown up in 1850, and I think Taylor had had the ability to keep things together without having violence. And I, I think that's one of the best things about his character and his personality. Brian, I've been doing a lot of travel lately, so let me take just a minute to tell the folks that when I travel, I am the king of the airport because I'm walking around with an away carry-on. Those four 360-degree spinner wheels make that thing glide like I'm on a cloud. It's super lightweight yet super durable, and it's made to last for a lifetime of travel. You get a 100-day trial so you can try any away product on the road. Limited lifetime warranty means they'll fix or replace your bag if it ever gets damaged. It's got a built-in compression pad that helps you pack more in. I'm, I'm telling you, I make good use of that. You got a removable laundry bag in there. You got a TSA-approved combination lock. It's outstanding. And my listeners rave about it too. Plus, it makes a great unexpected gift. Your friends all need this thing, but they would never think to ask you for it. So it's a great gift idea as well. Well, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase when you visit awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. All right, one more before we wrap up for today. Um, cause if I'm having you on five times this week, I, I can't, we can't do hour long episodes each time. <laughs> I'd have to start paying my guests to, to come on and do this, but <laughs> let's go back to the late 18th century. Cause there was a, a series on TV that I didn't watch on John Adams. And a lot of people mm-hmm. really, really liked it. They didn't necessarily like him, but they liked the series. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw that series, but I'm curious about your opinions of John Adams. And maybe he's a guy who had some merits outside office, but then was a lousy president. I mean, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on him. Yeah, I actually enjoyed the HBO series as well. It was really well done. There's this, the, the, some of the scenes in that are so good. The, the one where uh, they're at the moment where they vote for the declaration, it is just powerful because we have this idea that of course, everyone was cheering and we have fireworks now and hot dogs and ball games. But when they made that vote, 
you, it looked like every single one of them was just going to have a heart attack because they thought to themselves, oh my gosh, what did we just do? Uh, this is this is serious. And so it was dead silence. Great filmmaking. But besides that, that point, um, Adams takes a lot of heat, of course, and rightfully so for signing the Alien and Sedition Acts into law. Um, and so that's his one failing. But I think that uh, when you look at what Adams was trying to do, he was trying to avoid war with the French and the British, which was very difficult to do. And so I think we have to give him credit for his reluctance to just rush into a war with France after the XYZ affair. Um, so I think that's a that's a benefit. I mean, Adams is saying, no, we don't want to do that. That would just be stupid. The Federalists are pushing for it. Um, here, they're forcing him to call up uh, the military so they can go fight the French. Um, and uh, Adams is saying, wait, wait, let's try to negotiate. Of course, at the same time, Washington comes out of retirement and Hamilton is now uh, put, uh, put in charge of the United States Army. Um, and, and Adams is still trying to send a diplomatic delegation to France so they can work out these differences uh, with the French government. And ultimately that happens, right? The Treaty of Mortfontaine in 1800 settles all the problems with the French that we had. We were perpetual allies. And people have to remember how dangerous France was in the late uh, 18th century. This is the this is the, uh, the French revolutionary period. And then of course, leading into the Napoleonic era and France is extremely unstable. They're at war with everybody, right? So the United States theoretically then is at war with everybody too, because we have a perpetual uh, alliance with them. So Adams is trying to get rid of that problem, and I think we should give him credit for that. He Again, I would take John Adams over anybody in the last half century in the presidency any day of the week. He was a real Republican in that he was believed in disinterested statesmanship. He was someone that uh, didn't necessarily, uh, you know, he was, he was for bigger government in the 1790s, but bigger government in the 1790s would be like, a, I mean, Hamilton had had one employee in the treasury, right? So can you imagine the treasury department having two employees? Uh, I mean, that, this is what we're talking about, big government back in the 1790s. So um, Adams was was great on, I think, overall in foreign policy. Um, he was just uh, really bad in that in that one instance with, uh, with the Alien Sedition Acts and um, took, and rightfully so, lost office because of it. All right, we're going to call it a day today, but I want people to know about the Brian McClanahan show and about your McClanahan Academy. So say a word about that. Yeah, right. If you want to uh, follow the Brian McClanahan show, just go to brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there. I, I podcast once or usually twice a week if I'm really busy once a week, uh, but it's uh, it's just a, a, a 30 minute drive time podcast where I can, uh, uh, it's, it's all monologue. So there's no callers. It's just me. And so I talk about all kinds of things, but um, you've got that. And then of course, I've got my McClanahan Academy, which is how I help monetize the podcast. So if you want to go out there, it's always free to enroll there. Uh, but um, it's a great way to get courses. I have uh, seven courses now available and um, you can use the coupon code WOODS and get 25% off any of those courses. You get one free for signing up, but uh, you can get 25% off any of the courses I have for sale there. A lot of great stuff. So uh, you can hop on over there and, and get more of me there as well. All right, excellent. So we'll have links to that at tomwoods.com slash 1464. All right, thanks, Brian. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, a couple of announcements uh, later this year. I'm going to be speaking at the Mises Institute Supporters Summit out in Los Angeles, October 25th through the 27th. This is 2019. And I'm going to be speaking at the Symposium with Ron Paul down uh, near Lake Jackson in Clute, Texas, on November 9th. So, And then I have an event coming up November 14th and 15th in Vienna, but I, I don't suppose I have that many listeners uh, over there. 
Uh, if I do, you can find out the details on that and these other events as well. Uh, they'll all be linked at tomwoods.com slash events. So I would love to see you at any of these events. All right, Brian McClanahan Week continues tomorrow. See you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.